This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time, or in this case, a one TV season at a time. I am your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. Uh, happy to be here again for the first time that we've recorded over Resistance Season 1, Part 1. Yeah, these, these notes are seeming very familiar. Have, have we talked about these before? I don't think so. Uh, probably not. And before you start accusing me of accidentally <laughs> having deleted my file because I thought I already sent it to you, I'm just going to stop that right now. That's not going to stop me from accusing you. Dang it. Uh, yeah. So, thanks, James. We're back here. Uh, we, <laughs> we're here to talk about uh, the first half of uh, the first of the second season of Star Wars Resistance again because someone someone deleted their file. Uh, <laughs> somebody. Somebody. And I know when we did Rebels and the Clone Wars, we just did the whole season <laughs> in one episode. I think did we reach four? Did we get to four hours? I'm pretty sure we got to four hours on some of those episodes. We may have. I think probably three three to three and a half was probably the average. Yeah, felt like. and I am just really sick and tired of editing episodes of that length. So now, if anything that's going to take a long time, we're just going to split into two episodes. So this this episode, we're going to talk about the first nine episodes of the, of the second season of Resistance, and then the next ten episodes, next episode. And honestly, I'm really looking forward. Like the last, so we Mandalorian was two episodes, Rise of Skywalker was two episodes. This is going to be two episodes. I'm looking forward to talking about something that just as we can do in just one episode. Right. I'm very much ready to get back into movies for a bit. Not have an entire season hanging over my head for recording. So we, we, we covered most of the behind the scenes stuff on this show where that back when we did season one. Um, but it was a while back. So we're going to give a kind of a brief refresher of what was going on behind the scenes. So the series was created off a concept from Dave Filoni, uh, but he didn't have all that much involvement in the day to day running the show. Uh, that fell to the three main kind of showrunners. First, there's Justin Ridge, who is a supervising director on Resistance. Uh, he worked with Dave Filoni all the way back in the pilot of Avatar The Last Airbender. Awesome little show, by the way. But then he was a storyboard artist and director on Clone Wars, and then worked as an episodic director on Rebels before replacing Filoni as the uh, supervising director for the final two seasons. Then there's Brandon Albman. He's the head writer. Um, he's written on and produced just so many different animated shows, uh, but, but one of the big ones is the, uh, the uh, Teenage... Mutant Ninja Turtles animated show from like 2014 to 2017. Then there's the head producer, Athena Yvette Portillo. Uh, and she was a producer on Clone Wars and Rebels as well. Um, so those are the three uh, head honchos for this show. And uh, they, they they obviously report um, to Filoni, but he was busy doing other awesome things like Clone Wars Season 7 and The Mandalorian. Mm. So as far as, as far as Season 2, uh, the show was renewed uh, for a second season during the airing of the first season. Um, and it wasn't until the trailer came out just like two, two or three months before the air date for the, for the uh, second season, they announced that the, that the second season would actually be the final season of the show, which was pretty shocking for a lot of people, me included. Um, you know, Re- Rebels, Rebels went for, you know, five sort of six seasons, now seven seasons, Clone Wars, uh, not, sorry, Clone Wars went for, uh, eventually, ultimately seven seasons. Uh, Rebels went for four seasons. I was kind of expecting to go for you know, at least three or four, maybe five seasons. But and, and as far as the reasoning for why 
they canceled the show, or they didn't cancel the show. They just they ended the show with the second season. Um, they re- according to them that this was always the plan. Like they knew when they started, they were only going to go two seasons. Uh, you know, you never know. They could just be talking. Um, I, we we do know that this show didn't get like a, an amazingly uh you know positive reception, but that you know they didn't stop for making a second season. Uh, so we don't really know. Uh, obviously, there's only a, like a year of time between the Force Awakens and the Rise of Skywalker, so there's not there's not exactly a lot of you know time and space for them to play in. Um, and so yeah, we really don't know exactly why they only chose to make two seasons, but that's what they did. Yeah, hypothetically, when we first talked about this, uh, I might have said that I I didn't buy this being the plan the whole time. But actually thinking about it now with the way the timeline does wind up with this ending probably just a few months out from Rise of Skywalker, I guess it would make sense to just, you know, we we don't have a big timeline for this trilogy, so let's just have a show to to fill in a couple of gaps of time until the end. Because it'd be hard to even plan what the show might look like after the trilogy ended. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure how the productions of this show and... um and Rise of Skywalker line up, especially considering you know, the, the various writers and directors that that film went through. And obviously that would have a major effect on where they could go with the show. That's got to be a difficult position to be in, you know, be, be the ones in TV, which is always you know playing second fiddle to the movies. So the bulk of the cast returned from season one. So I'm just going to run down through some of the bigger voices. Uh, you have Christopher Sean as the lead, Kazuda Ziono. Uh, Kazuda Ziono. Uh, Scott Lawrence as Jarek Eager. Josh Brenner as Nuku Vozu, Susie McGrath as Tam Rivora, Bobby Moynihan as Orca, Jim Rash as Flix, Donald Faison as Hype Faison, uh, Myrna Velasco as Tora Doza, Jason Hightower as Captain uh, Emmanuel Doza, Mary Elizabeth McGlynn as Freya Fenris, uh, and Sumali Mon- Montano as Agent Tyranny. Uh, and some recurring characters you have uh, Ellen Dubbin or Dubin as Captain Phasma uh, in season two. Gwendolyn Christie voiced her in the first season. I didn't even realize they recasted the role in season two, so that was a really good piece of casting. Uh, Liam McIntyre as Commander Pyre. Elijah Wood as the worst character ever, Jace Ruckwood. <laughs> Carolyn Hennessy as General Leo Organa. Tova Feldshu as Aunt Z. And Nazneen Contractor as Sonara San. Uh, it's a, the first episode of season two was aired on October 6, 2019, uh, and it was just aired weekly from then on Disney XD. All right, so let's move into the, uh, the our discussion of the episodes. The first episode is uh, Into the Unknown, directed by Brad Rao and written by Stephen Melching. So the Colossus has nearly escaped the First Order on Castellon by launching the station and fleeing into hyperspace, but they are badly damaged in the attack. The crew scrambles to make repairs and to keep the ship running long enough to reach the resistance base on Dakar. Uh, meanwhile, Captain Pyre, uh, Commander Pyre and Agent Tyranny of the First Order are reprimanded by Captain Phasma for letting them escape in order to capture or destroy the Colossus at all costs. Back on the Colossus, Kaz and, and friends are attacked by a pesky uh, First Order BB droid uh, who was left behind in all the chaos. They are eventually able to eject it into space and make the necessary repairs. Um, Kaz sends a secret message to Tam, who had, who had joined the First Order as, as a pilot, apologizing for deceiving her about being a resistant spy. But she is still angry with him and won't even listen to it. So yeah, we, this one opens up right where season two left off. Uh, we're just kind of like padding over the wreckage of Castellan. Those we- those weird like pelican bird things with four eyes. 
and I, I like we we just we just pick up right in the middle of the chaos, um, where the, the last um the last season left us, um, and then there's Phasma being you know <laughs> the usual kind of first order jerk like you fail, and I'll I'll see to your execution personally, which is there's a lot of threats of execution happening <laughs> in this show. Yeah, so as a as a uh premiere for the season uh what do you think of it overall because i i like it okay it's weirdly low-key yeah that's that's the thing for me is it felt like it didn't provide a lot of direction as a season premiere for like and this is what season one is about and it doesn't have to i guess but it just it feels i don't know it doesn't feel like we see too much of a, a shift in terms of what's going on outside of you know the big thing of you know the colossus is floating well see, season two is kind of about running away and repairing things <laughs> yeah that happens a lot uh I, I feel i do feel like like if they had combined these two episodes into like a you know two-part season premiere with this and a quick salvage run you know that one is definitely a lot more intense and a lot more kind of in line with what this shit what, what what this season is about just kind of always stay one step ahead of the first order and usually you know jumping away into hyperspace with barely a second to spare um yeah but this one it's just kind of a, there are a lot of running around they're trying to you know fix all the various things that were broken in the um in in, you know, in all the fighting in the last episode and there's a really a really scary uh uh first order bb unit bb bb unit um I, I like what they do with it, just the little things they do to make it so creepy, like the, the cracked uh, sensor, you know, eye sensor. And so his vision is all like static and evil and red. Um, and just the way it moves, like the, the way it, it like, the, you know, how the joints have those little like r- repel gut, repel yeah. things where they'll shoot and stick to the wall. And it looks all it's fun and cute when BB, when BBA does it. But when this guy does it, it's like it's like super you know uh, abrupt and scary looking. You see that like the clunking of the metal and stuff. It's yeah, it's pretty cool. I I really do like the physics of the droid battle scene. Like they they really milk the uh, the little ripple ripple hooks or whatever you want to call them for all they're worth. Yeah, that whole scene is cool, and, and they make it believable that one of those could actually be a, a, a tangible threat to several of our friends, right? Because I think the sound design is really good, and there's, you know, it's it's kind of easy. Like I, I'm tempted to look at like the BB units and think like all oh, these little bitty droids, but anytime you see them actually with people and you see them like pick them up, they're like the size of your torso, really. So uh-huh. you do kind of, it, I feel like I'm able to believe it as a threat. Yeah. And just little touches like th- th- this. This whole episode is kind of like a, a, a family version of Alien or Aliens. Um, there's a bit of both in there. Just there's a there's a scary monster in the darkest picking us off one by one, and just little visuals they do to increase the creepiness. Like the, just the going through the dark hallways with all the the, the Cheladi hidden in their shells, like on the walls. Or um, it's a cool when, visual. Yeah, when Niku goes to find a, a CB and just see her floating in the zero G with the, the head separate from the body, it's like. <laughs> Just little things to you know, to increase the creepiness is really fun. Yeah. So overall, like I like the episode. Okay. I just think because it is so low key, like some some shows can get away with like opening low key because there's a lot of character stuff, but because Resistance isn't super strong on just like depth of character, and it, the more it allows for just downtime, the more it allows for like 
things that maybe I'm not the biggest fan of with the show. <laughs> I counted three instances of Kaz just very clearly hurting himself. Like either yeah. floating into something or tripping over something, walking into something. And always with the reaction shot from another character rolling their eyes and shaking their head. <laughs> yeah, it gets a bit much after a while. Yeah, it was... Like, that was one of my big issues with the first season. I think a lot of people's problem with it is that they just didn't like Kaz. Like, he was super goofy and clumsy and overconfident in all the wrong ways. And a bit too sl- similar to Jar Jar for me. Yeah, I, I, that, that, that's a bit strong. <laughs> but it, maybe it's... But I think I could describe my dislike for both characters using very similar language and that it's... I, he's not a coward in the way Jar Jar is, and so that's what really puts him ahead of him. Mm. But like over the season, you, he he kind of we watch him grow up and become you know become a more, just a more competent, intelligent person, and and growing to actually kind of being the leader of the resistance on the Colossus. And in this episode, they kind of knock him down several pegs to where he was like in the beginning of the first season. And it is a little frustrating because that was my like my least favorite aspect of the show before. Yeah, so not not all that much happens. Uh, then there's a little. We have a little bit with Tam, where you know Tam is now with the First Order, and uh, Jace, as is uh, Jace Rucklin, they're kind of bunk mates, and they're in the same training squad. Uh, and she's finally gotten everything she wanted. You know, and if we learned in the first season that she had been, you know, working Yeager's uh, Yeager's shop to try and save up, you know, to buy you know, to buy a ship so she could be a pilot and a racer, and now the First Order has given her the you know the opportunity to be a pilot, you know, to be a professional pilot. And, you know, for someone who is, you know, for her, she seems like very, very apolitical. So, you know, she's not as concerned with the larger, um, the larger implications of the evil space fascists. She's just like, yeah, they, they gave me the thing I wanted now. Um, and she's also still very angry with Kaz. Like she doesn't even listen to the message. Uh, and I, I love the final shot where, you know, she listens to the message, she puts it down, and then just like you know, sticks her helmet on. So the shot is like directly onto the face of the uh, of the first order helmet with her her choosing her side. Um, you know, very you know, evocative imagery. Yeah. So for the second episode, this is a a quick salvage run. This one was directed by Bosco and G and written by Brandon Allman. Uh, and this Tam listens to Kazuda's mess uh transmission and is overheard by Rucklin, now also a first order cadet pilot. I hate that Rucklin. Oh. Hate that guy. He forces Tam to share the communication with Agent Tyranny. The Colossus arrives at Dakar to find that the resistance base has been destroyed, but their supply of coaxium has been depleted, making it impossible to make another jump to hyperspace. Kaz suggests salvaging some of the remains uh, of a First Order dreadnought, which he does with the help of the pirates. The First Order arrives and the Aces defend the away team as Niku transfers the unstable coaxium to the Colossus, with its shields failing just before they were able to make the jump to hyperspace. Uh, yeah, I like this one a whole lot. Um, it's just nonstop action and tension, and I, I the thing I love the best about this, it, if it reminds not only it reminds me a lot of of uh, the Castle Run in Solo, not simply because we're talking about Coaxium, which I I, I love these little touches. I love that I love that fuel is now such a big part of Star Wars. It, it was in the original trilogy for all the weirdos like who think that Ryan Johnson invented it, but like it, it's. This show is really kind of, uh, or the Disney era is really kind of uh, diving into all of the little technical bits and pieces and, and just the, the all the stuff that goes into everyday life in in a galaxy far, far away. I I really appreciate that. Um, but going back to what I said, it reminds me a lot of the Kessel Run in Solo because it's just this 
constant ramping of tension, just one thing after another going wrong, and they're under attack, and oh my gosh, the Quaxium's going to explode, and it's getting more and more red. And by the end of it, where it's cross-cutting between, you know, the, you know, the Aces versus the Ties, the you know, the Star Destroyer, uh, Tam, you know, watching in fear on the Star Destroyer and the the, com- the command room with a uh, Yeager and um, Doza yelling into radios and Niku and Kaz in the engine room trying to install it. It's like, I mean, it, it's re- it's really effective, like submarine thriller at that point. Um, and I was always really on the edge of my seat, holding my breath, which is pretty surprising for you know, this type of family show. Yeah, I like this episode a lot more than than the first one. I mean, for a lot of the reasons you just said, the first one had a lot of downtime and it entertained some of the the aspects that I'm not a big fan of. But this one, because it has it, it has a lot more momentum, it has a lot more actual stakes. The climax is what really surprised me and how I, I, I never really felt like re- resistance was ever going to make me feel too terribly tense. But uh, I think because of the established lore with the coaxium, the climax was actually really, really well done. Like I remember kind of kind of tensing up every time we were cutting back and forth between Niku slowly uh placing it into the slot. And so yeah, overall and also it's just the visuals are really cool. Like being outside oh, yeah. in the debris, uh I'm expecting Captain Kennedy's frozen body to just kind of like <laughs> float by the camera. With this with that that you know, the uh defiant sneer still on his face. Mm. Man, I wanted more Kennedy. Uh, but uh, yeah, just like space debris and like the way the lighting, lighting is great in the show, especially out in space. Uh, so yeah, just overall, it it felt a lot, it, it had a lot more going on in it. Uh, so I enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah, there's so many incredible visuals here. Just the way they come out of hyperspace and the, the enormous debris field. Like, I can't imagine how crazy that is to animate all those just little pieces moving independently. Um, Kraken's uh, sail barge is just a mm. thing of beauty when that's going going through all the debris field and going into the giant uh, the dreadnought. And it's just how cool is that that the, the you know, this the second episode of this show is like picking up directly off you know uh, you know in the aftermath of that battle um the battle of Dakar in the opening of of the last Jedi and they have to go into the dreadnought that uh that Poe destroyed to get the Quaxims. Like, I just love that when they can, they can connect the two together in ways. I, 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 at least I didn't feel, I didn't feel that it was kind of like reaching. It felt like this, it felt completely natural to me that these connections are being made. Yeah. um, Because we know that, you know, they're going to to car and just uh, going back to the, uh, his sail barge. It is such a gorgeous image. Um, I reminded me of, I've never seen treasure planet, but I've seen like clips of treasure planet. It reminded me of the ships in that. It's very Miyazaki to me. Like yeah, I could see it. if if uh, like Hal had a flying sail barge. That's what it'd look like. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's something like that. <laughs> there are yeah. There are, there are uh, flying pirates in um Castle in the Sky. Well, there you go. Uh, something else I liked a lot about this is uh, where the first episode didn't really have a lot of this. This one had a lot more like personal stakes and personal conflict. Um, like. That I like that Kaz is having to. He he's trying to believe that Tam wouldn't turn them in, and even though there's still conflict in Tam that will be resolved eventually, I like that in within this episode, his refusal to believe that she would betray them is like it's not justified. 
because under mm-hmm. pressure she does. And so, you know, there's it's I was worried they were going to go too kid friendly and not suggest that that a former friend could betray them like this. But but I think by doing this, they're really able to draw out uh, the conflict in Tam a lot more by she's she's not for the entire season just refusing to ever do anything that could hurt them. I just I like the position that they're putting Tam in, you know, with all, all the different various pressures on her and, and the manipulation from tyranny. And uh, Pyra was talking about how they should you know condition her and tyranny wants to keep her as she is so that, you know, her emotional connection to the people on the Colossus, maybe she can manipulate it somehow to destroy her friends. Just I, I love Tierney, like the way she is just so slimy and evil, but also so nice on the surface. Yeah, something I, I like about, uh, and this isn't even really specific to this episode, this is more of this season, is by having Tam over in the First Order, we we get to flush out First Order life more than we've seen in the in the series. Um, and that's that's, to me, really cool. And I also like that they find a plot way like an in-universe explanation for why Tam wouldn't be conditioned, you know, because reality is we could, you know, they would condition her and, you know, this we would resolve any sort of internal drama or conflict pretty quickly. Mm. But by saying that they, she doesn't want to have to do, like damage any possibility of, of uh, exploiting her connection there. You know, it's, I, the question it leaves me with though is why didn't they condition Rucklin? <laughs> Because he's the worst and he doesn't need he's, it. He's already perfect first order fodder. Yeah. He's such a turd. Yeah, so it's, it's just a really fun little episode that just keep you know, keeps the tension uh, going. Uh, they also introducing kind of the, the tension between the, the pirates and uh, the, and the station, which is going to you know be a big part later on in the season. All right, so next episode is Live Fire. It's directed by Stuart Lee and written by Marigreed Scott. Worried about how badly the Aces did against the First Order pilots over to Carr, Captain Doza places them under the command of Yeager and adds Kaz to their number. Yeager leads them on exercises and drills over the ice planet Salsor 3, which go very poorly. Uh, meanwhile, Tam and the other First Order cadets are sent on practice flights of their own. During the exercises, uh, Jason Ruckland's ship is damaged and he almost crashes, but he is saved um, by Tam, which angers her superiors. Uh, back at the Colossus, the Aces go on another exercise, but are attacked by a ginormous Jakusk, which almost kills Yeager. But through teamwork, they are able to drive it off. Um, they return to the Colossus, a, a better team of combat pilots. And this one has hype as a major character, so that's a downside. But I do like the, I do like it that you know, a lot of it's just you know flying around doing exercises and just blowing things up. That, that part's cool. The hype part, not so much. Yeah, so I kind of had the opposite reaction in this one that I think you did. I I much preferred the the resistance training part to the first order part. I I think part of that is I don't always love the way they present the first order. Like I know they're evil, but I I feel like they're a, a more powerful and dangerous threat the more relatable and convincing they can be. And I think sometimes they just come across as like we're evil. And that's it. <laughs> We're just real evil. Like Which I think I, I do like the notion that the First Order is the Empire 
with anything nice about it, it's stripped away. It's just like, okay, this is what we are. You know, we are we are the we are the, the you know the Empire two point two point with the new and improved. Like any any flaws or weaknesses in the Empire that could have led to their fall, we will strip them. You know, strip them out of us. Like, like as far as we know, where the, the stormtroopers they weren't conditioned, they weren't mind controlled, like or brain scraped, brain scraped as someone calls it. Um, like if it's like ev- everywhere you look, they just take that ideology of uniformity and the complete destruction of the individual and just you take it one more step which i i, I find interesting yeah i i definitely like it i just i think because a, a core conflict in this is tam uh tam would probably sympathize with uh old Werner herzog from the mandalorian and you know like does the does the galaxy seem any more stable and i like that that idea is is continued from the Mandalorian here mm-hmm. to where it's, you know, the the first order. The appeal of the first order is galactic stability. Um, it's just because a core conflict is her seeing this and like they've given me what I've wanted. Resist like all I've seen the resistance snooping around. They can't really provide the the Republic is in shambles. I just I think they're the first order is a more effective villain if they see if they can be more appealing and sometimes mm-hmm. like and I understand the logic whenever she's berated for you know going after rescuing the pilot but sometimes like I think sometimes my least favorite trope in these kinds of things is just you know you you never ever go back to help anybody because people are weak and you let the weak die and they're we're, they're just gonna die and we're evil and. <laughs> Sometimes it seems a bit overkill in their presentation of of evil, but yeah, but I, I like the episode. I even like the first order stuff. It's just sometimes, sometimes that could be a bit much. You should you should read the book Lost Stars. Um, it tells a parallel story like during the in the like alongside the original trilogy of two two different characters like um your two friends, one on the imperial side, one on the rebellion side. And kind of just their intertwining stories, and it does a lot to kind of humanize the people who fought for the empire, and you know, and the reasons why, and all of that. Very interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I do agree. I think you know, this 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 is a family show, and I, I I feel like if depending on who the author is, you'll get various layers of nuance on just you know on the evil of the first order. Um, and I think you know, this this level is is. You know, probably to be expected for this show. I, I do agree that they could have maybe risen above it a little bit the way like Rebels and um, and, or maybe not Rebels, but, but the Clone Wars did. Um, yeah, yeah. The, a bit more nuanced. some of the you know Lux Von Terry episodes. Yeah, you know, really humanizing the Federation, and I know the that the or not the Federation, the uh, Separatists, and I know the Separatists are meant to be more appealing than just you know space Nazis, but. Yeah. Um, so then going back to the other side, the other, whereas the, um, whereas, uh, the, the, the first order side is just very dark and gloomy and oppressive. Uh, the, the Colossus side of the story is pretty much your standard sports drama where, oh, team can't work together because Hothead doesn't want to be a team player. And, oh no, maybe Hothead is wrong and maybe Hothead, Hothead can actually be a team player. Hugs and kisses at the end. Everyone's happy. Everyone's friends. They win, mm. yay team! Does the heart good? Yeah, <laughs> I don't hate it. I, 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 I'm sounding super cynical. I, I just don't like. I don't like it, but I like everything around it. Just um, the, all the various exercises, the way that um, the the uh, aces are all super confident, and then uh, Kaz and Yuga just pick them apart. 
Um, that was that was really cool to see. Um, be- because we the, the previous the, the the pilot Kaz was just such a dork. I love it when he gets into his element and he could just you know kick some butt in a uh, in a in a fighter. Yeah, so like I, I do like that. You know, even Kaz might be a dork on the land, but he is he's still a great pilot in the sky. Um, and just the idea that you know just because they're good racing pilots doesn't mean they're good combat pilots. And then you know, all they're combat before is you know fighting um Kragen's pirates, which isn't all that much. Yeah, I surprisingly I really like this side of the story. I think part of why I liked it is, you know, they they have they avoided melodrama in a way that I didn't think they would. Like it doesn't, you know, you have the whole I'm, you know, I'm just looking out for myself. I'm going after this guy because I don't care what y'all do, just don't get in my way. But they they kind of get past that pretty early on, and most of it is just like really cool flying, and. Uh, and that's something that like I wish Resistance had more racing because I love the way they visualize it. You know, just, just the you know seeing the air at the tips of the wings and like the way the it affects the water as they fly over. Like it's just the it exhaust, looks, like just the very yes. colored exhaust. Yeah, I it all looks really pretty, and so a lot of their side is just like having fun flying around, uh, and in a weird way, like I feel. Like I'm giving them the reaction they were hoping for from all of like the six year olds watching, where like at the end when they party, I'm like, "Yay, they're a team now! This is cool!" Uh, like I still I'm mixed on hype, but for some reason, like at the end when he's like, "I couldn't have done it without my wingman," I'm like, "Ah, oh, look at these guys! Good time!" <laughs> like I, I hype the idea isn't bad, but he's just always at an eleven, just shrieking yeah. about something, <laughs> and the voice is super annoying. Although there's a funny moment when he quits the team and he knocks Griff's helmet to the floor, then his droid R four picks it up, <laughs> I love it up and drops it again and rolls away chuckling. Uh, that was fun. Yeah, and uh, I remember going back to the vigils. In uh, when we were watching um, Rebels, we we would always rave about how just how beautiful the the animated clouds were, and th- and this one ha- is like they're all flying in and out and around fog and clouds and uh, these huge ice sculptures, and it's all so gorgeous. Yeah, and there's a big creature. Yeah, really cool monster design. I really like the like this weird flying manta ray thing. Uh, as cartoony as some of the visuals are, although really like the visuals stopped being a complaint for me and I've just kind of done a 180 on them and I really love the way Rebels lo- or uh, Resistance looks. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they have cool monsters. I will say that. Yeah. I just wish the monster ate hype that I would be happy. <laughs> I don't dislike them that much. So the next episode is episode four. This is Hunt on Celsor 3. This one is directed by Brad Rao and written by Sharon Flynn. Uh, in this, the crew of the Colossus is running low on supplies, prompting the pirates to hunt the manta ray like Jakusk on the planet Celsor 3. Uh, Kaz and Tora independently join the hype, but the beast is immune to their fire. Two of the pirates are knocked to the surface, forcing Kragan and Sonara to retreat in their sail barge. Later, Kaz and Tora return to the cold planet and land in an attempt to fire on the Jakusk from below. Their plans are complicated by Tora's unruly pet Buggles joining them and the maroon pirates stealing their fighters to escape. However, Kaz is successful in taking down the Jakus, and the Colossus retrieves them and celebrates with a feast. I think this episode would be about 30% improved if the Jakus ate the two pirates and Buggles. Mm. Um, yeah, this, one, this, one, this, this, this is decent. I, I, I like you know, the whole, the, the um, Colossus is running out of food. People are, you know, people are starting to leave, wanting to leave. Um, 
Uh, and the pirates are also, they're actively undermining Dozer's authority, trying to go on the hunt, not because they care about people, but because they want you know, everyone to be grateful, you know, grateful to them and not to Doza. Um, so it's like, it's a, I like the, you know, the building conflict and tensions on the this, on this Colossus. And the idea of going on a Jakus hunt on the planet with a cannon is really fun. Unfortunately, they brought along Buggles and just kind of turned into this really goofy kitty um, slapstick and Tora, who as a character I like a lot. I like Tora a lot. Uh, she just turns into the crazy cat lady whenever her um, her Buggles is in danger and she abandons the hunt and runs off, leaving Kaz you know to fend off this ginormous monster. It's like it just it just makes me like everyone less when <laughs> when they're being dumb. Yeah. So the positive thing is I I do like that the uh, that a lot of the conflicts in season two rarely it's this the show is able to avoid a lot of the you said this and it's a misunderstanding and the conflict comes from like just all of this needless you interpersonal lied to me. yeah I hate stuff like that you know we got that out of the way with uh with season one fortunately um. And so I like that the conflicts that arise anytime they're internal here, they actually feel pretty organic. Like, you know, we're we're being a home to the pirates because they assist in a battle, but tensions are still going to be there. And, you know, that's it's not all is forgiven and forgotten kind of situation here. And, you know, they are trying to undermine and usurp the the authority of of Doza. So I think that's cool. Um, but, yeah, the inclusion of Buggles just makes the episode really rough to me. And like. <laughs> They only do this for like 30 seconds in this episode, but it's my one of my least favorite things in any show ever, just at all. So even 30 second inclusion is enough to get my blood boiling. But I hate the overacting of like whenever someone is like, oh, what are you doing? Like, oh, nothing. It's nothing. There's nothing over here. Like that, <laughs> that just always annoys the crap out of me. So it only lasts for 30 seconds, but like it all, it's also extra annoying here because there's no real reason. Like it, it just snuck into his ship. He's not really guilty of anything. And like why he would try to hide. I don't know. That whole scene to me is really annoying. And then it's only exacerbated when the stupid animal runs away and she chases after it. And I'm just like, ah, we already, we already, you've got pirates trying to undermine your, your father and the leader. We're trying to kill a beast that can only be killed from underneath. We've got stranded pirates who just stole our ships. Like we've are we're already enough layers in on conflict. We don't need a stupid space dog to, <laughs> to take us any further. You, we've got enough conflict. Yep. Um, another little moment that I like is uh towards the end when uh when Niku projects the castle on sky onto the ceiling of the ship. <laughs> but the, the great moment is one of the pelican birds kind of looks up and sort of flies into the ceiling. <laughs> And I like that they did that too because uh, so I I love the visual of the Colossus floating out in space like there's something about just seeing this big hulking mass of a ship just out there with all the stars and the way the light hits hits the ship and like the way it casts shadows it it looks so cool there but I think for some reason one of the visuals that really stuck out to me from season one and it was like my favorite location was just that outside market area where you've got all of the different tents set up for the, you know, the different food stands and stuff that just the way they shot that of like just one long little sales street. Uh, I liked a lot. And so being able to go back out there with the nice blue sky above us, I get, I get both of the locations that I love, you know? Yes. Not nearly as like gloomy and oppressive as just being inside of a dark ship. Yeah. All right, so next episode is The Engineer. This one's directed by Bosco NG and written by Sarah Carbiner 
and Erica Rosby. Uh, so the Colossus receives a distress call from a stranded ship. Kaz and Sonara investigate and find a damaged ship with an engineer named Nina, who is on the run from the First Order. They take her to the Colossus and help her repair her ship in exchange for her help repairing the Colossus. Uh, her and Niku strike up a friendship as they go about repairing the many broken systems on the station. Tensions are raised when she discovers that Kragen's pirates are stealing power. Kaz and Sonara investigate her accusation, uh, but discover it to be false. Then Nina reveals herself to be a First Order spy who has been sabotaging the Colossus instead of fixing it. She escapes and contacts Pyra and Tyranny, who show up in their Star Destroyer and attack the Colossus. Uh, meanwhile, Niku and Kaz scramble and are able, are, quickly, are able to repair all of Nina's damage, and the Colossus jumps away just in time. There's a lot of jumping away just in time in this show. <laughs> um, and uh, one fun little thing is... Uh, Nina is voiced by a Megan Falcone, uh, who is married to Josh Brenner, the voice of Niku. No wonder they connected. Yes, it was fate, destiny. Until she sold them out. Yeah, that did happen. Yeah, so this one, I, I like the way that this starts, you know, with the kind of the, the conflict of, you know, wh- whether they, you know, the Colossus who is, you know, in danger and on, on the run themselves can afford to, you know, go out and help, you know, random distress calls, you know, wh- what, you know, is it is it worth it? You know, being the good person and you know being the good Samaritan, or you know, is, is it bringing too much danger to the, to the ship? And even though in this case, it only brought more danger to the ship, I, I feel like I, I feel like the show still doesn't kind of doesn't take a side against helping people. Like it's it still seems to say that you know helping people is still worth it. It's, you know, it's what separates the resistance from the Empire, you know, and you know, the, or from the from the First Order, the rebellion from the Empire. Um, but it, it also acknowledges the fact that. You know, yes, you should help people. Yes, you should. You should be doing these things, but also in you know, in a dangerous world at war, it it, it comes with consequences and it comes with it you know, with a price often. And I feel like this is explored a little bit more in uh, in the uh, uh, the missing Asian episodes that we'll talk about in our next podcast. But I, it, it doesn't entirely resolve it. But I, I I do find it an interesting question. I I like this episode. I mean, for a lot of the same reasons that you just gave, where it's. It's not just we won because we were the good guys. And, you know, it is like the conflict was started because, you know, you you had to go out there. Um, I also like this because it's another example of like finding conflict through established dynamic and not really having to drum it up out of nowhere. Uh, What they do with like, you know, raising suspicion about the pirates, I think, is is cool. Uh, the only I've never thing heard of a pirate who steals things. That's exactly. <laughs> that reminds me of the meme. Good pirates never steal. These <laughs> we're living in strange times. Uh, but um, I do think though that sometimes the pirate stuff would be more enjoyable if I don't dislike Kragen as a character. I think he's strong enough. I like his visuals, but I think this stuff would this would really work better if we had like a Hondo Anaka kind of character. And I know that's hard because you can't just make Hondo, you can't plug him back here because canonically he's with Chewie, you know. Um, you could find a way. But I also don't know if I want him to be just like ripping people off. And he's he's turned over and, well, I don't know. I get, He never, I, it's probably too much to ever think he's turned over a new leaf. But, uh, but I think, so the issue with the pirates to me is they can't go like brutal cutthroat pirates because it's you know it's a kid's show and 
we can't portray them as just, you know, awful people we're having to put up with. But they're also not just like the weirdly likable. Like there's some of the pirate characters that they try to do this with. Sometimes they just get an eye roll for me and I I wish that they were just eaten by the jacuzzi. But, you know, like they don't really have that lovable pirate aspect that uh, that Hondo and his crew did. They're not super fun and funny and enjoyable to hang out with. So it, instead, we're kind of like left in the middle with, well, they're not awful cutthroat and they're not really funny. They're just they're just mean. You know, they're not they're not real good guys. So I wish that they could go a bit further with them. But regardless, you know, I, I still think Kragen is, is, you know, fine as a character. And I like Sonara a lot. I am always up for more Hondo. So or more Hondo like like characters. The world would just be a better place with more Hondas around. It probably wouldn't, but it'd be a more enjoy like <laughs> it'd be a f- more fun place until you died. It'd be like uh, what's this? The Pirate City in Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, That's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, oh, what is that place? It's, uh, uh, Port Royal. No, Port, Port Royal. Royal. The, no, it's not Port no. Royal. The where Elizabeth is from. Oh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> I totally, totally, a tortuga. 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 I knew it was a turtle name. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I, that's the rule we want. Um, yeah, so that's... as far as Nina, like, I, I, I do wish we got a bit more from her character. Like, I do like the little friendship she strikes up with Niku and feeling guilty. You know, not guilty enough to actually you know turn sides, but guilty enough to feel bad about it. Um, and just uh, Niku is just too, too good for this world. Um, and it, like, sure, Bebo can go. Bebo can go die, but I did feel kind of bad for him, where he's just standing there, like, "Oh, she, Nina would never betray us," and then she, she starts shooting at him. I love, I love the moment where you know Kaz is ducked behind the wall, and Nico just like starts r- walking around all casually. I I like Niku more than I dislike him. There, are, he has moments that really grate on me, but I do like somebody who's just very. He's just innately altruistic. And so there he has moments where like I think it was oh, it was in the last episode, whenever, you know, he's they think he's moving out because you know he's like Aunt Z's right. Uh but he's really just, you know, fixing the the visuals for the the ceiling so they have the little view of the sky. So I I like that he is this kind of selfless person, and so I can put up with his little like food, food, food. Just his his weird little eccentricities <laughs> that might be a bit much. I also like food, so I do too. I, we can get along. Um, and I I like the, the the kind of the team up of Kaz and Sonara. Like, they kind of just become this unofficial investigative team. Whenever something's wrong, you know they're going off and getting into trouble together and. And it's I, I do like their, their their friendship. Um, and we actually get to see Kaz be somewhat competent. Like the end, in the end, where they're him and and Nico are running around fixing all the things. Like we actually get to see some of you know, the mechanical skills he's um learned in the previous season. And just Tierney saying, "Well, if we ever see Nina again, we'll execute her." Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, cold blooded. The sixth episode is From Beneath. This one was directed by Stuart Lee and written by uh, Kevin Burke and Chris Wyatt. Uh, in this short on fuel, Kaz, Toradoza, CB, Flix, and Orca travel to Flix's homeworld of Dragor Three, a stormy world with deep mines containing fuel. Flix receives an icy reception from his estranged cousins, particularly Flanks, 
In returning for helping to repair a broken drill, Flanks agrees to supply the offworlders with fuel. Their mission goes awry uh, when the lift malfunctions. While Tora and Orca climb back to the surface, the others are attacked by a large Karnex dragon, which captures Flanks. They rescue Flanks but are attacked by more dragons. With the help of Tora and Orca, they manage to drive the dragons away and seal the entrance to their caves. Flix reconciles with Flanks, who gives the offworlders fuel. Realizing that they were encroaching on the dragon's habitat, Flanks ends deep core drilling. Is it just me or do they just steal the, the plot from Reign of Fire? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Except this is sorely missing a bald Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> in the fading light, they can't focus. Um, so you're, you're, you're a kaiju guy. Uh, do these, does this qualify as a kaiju story? I think so. Because, I mean, most kaiju stories is just, you know, you got the, the skeptic. It's so funny. Watching through all of the kaiju movies back to back that are technically in universe. They're all the same movie because they all just start with, oh, these islanders believe in a god that attacks <laughs> primitives. <laughs> like At this point, you've got like three monsters regularly showing up to Tokyo. But anyways, it it definitely follows that format of like, you got the, oh, there's no such thing. The monsters appear. And then, like, the bulk of the story is just, like, running away from monsters as they terrorize things until we find a way to win. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it because <laughs> I think this episode is pretty bad. I didn't say I enjoyed this episode too much. I just said it counts. I think Flix and Orca are great side characters. I don't know that I need them as main characters. Um, and the the whole the conflict with uh, fl- between Flix and Flanks... Um, say that fast five times uh, is just ridiculous because it's the same thing over and over again. Something will happen. Flix will go, oh no, a dragon. And Flix is like, hey, you idiot, dragons aren't real. And then rinse and repeat like five or six times yeah. throughout the entire episode, pretty much to the point where dragons just like staring down at them and Flix is like, no, nope, dragons aren't real. Uh, yeah, it's just irritating. And uh, I just, and it's, it's fine. Like the, the the plot itself is fine. Like it doesn't really do much for me. Like there's just kind of a lot of wandering around in the dark, and I am I'm not all that f- fond of the dragon's design, and they're not they're <gasps> oh. not dangerous or scary enough to like to turn it into something like an actual like horror you know horror story. It's just kind of it's all just very meh to me. Yeah, so with the with the flink, flicks flanks thing, yeah, I, I'm very much. Like that, that gets old because I mean, it's another example of in these kind of situations, they really resemble hype and that it's just immediately, you know, energy levels just spike the second anything happens. So th- there is a lot of like a rock will fall down and it's like, oh, it's the dragons. We're all doomed. We're all going to die. You idiot. Dragons aren't real. They're not here. Blah, blah, blah. And yeah, we do that for a long time. And like separ- separating them with the malfunction feels... We, like I don't buy for a second that uh, Orca can climb back up that that little lift as far down as they went. Uh, yeah, he's his arms are given out after like twenty feet maybe. But uh, yeah, the, the rest of the episode is just kind of running around and hiding, and then the dragons here. The difference is I I really love the dragon design. I like it. Feels like a kind of a combination of the a very eastern looking dragon heads on these rocky salamander like bodies i just it's a cool very salamander it's a very unique design that i like a lot it's weird i don't like this episode near near as much as the zillow beast episode but i like this design a lot more just because the zillow beast to me just 
it looked like doodles. Like it just looked <laughs> like kids kind of like drew a thin body with swirly arms and fingers and swirly, just kind of doodled around. But uh, I think these dra- like the way the dragons are portrayed here, I, I think is cool. And I think they have like just the way they present like scale looks really cool. Uh, so I, I don't hate the episode. I think location's cool also. Like the mines are cool enough and I like the stormy planet. I was just bored and irritated. <laughs> um, and then all the dragon stuff, they, they just stole directly from Jurassic Park. Like the, the, the roar is a, is like literally a copy paste T-Rex roar. And, and they do the whole, don't, don't move. They can't see if you're not, you know, they can't see if you're not, if you stand still. Um, because that totally, that's totally how vision works. Uh, it is. I saw the movie that said that. Yeah, apparently. Uh, yeah, I really have nothing to say about this episode. <laughs> well, then we did it. All right. Uh, so next episode is The Relic Raiders. This one is directed by Brad Rao and written by Brandon Alman. So uh, Kaz, Tora, and Freya go on a supply run to, ab- to an abandoned trading post on Ashes 3. Um, once there, Kaz discovers that Kel and Ayla had stowed away. While exploring, an- while exploring they find an old t- temple of the Force. Uh, they hear a voice crying for help and venture inside to find a Sith temple buried underneath. Kaz stumbles into a trap and meets archaeologist Mika Gray. Together they escape and take an ancient Sith relic, but once outside they are captured by the First Order uh, relic raider troopers. Mika triggers the Sith relic, which kills the troopers uh, and since her ship was destroyed, Mika returns to the Colossus with them. And I like this one a lot. just Mainly just because of the all the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom vibes that's, that are going on. Um, and I, I think Mika Gray's a fun, a fun, just a very interesting addition to the galaxy. Uh, but it's just, it's, you know, not a lot happens, but it, it's just a, a lot of kind of fun riffing on you know, the various you know, Indiana Jones, Tomb Raider, Uncharted things. Yeah, I, I really love the, uh, the visual continuation from like Sith design that we see in, in Rebels, you know, with the very jagged edges and the, like the red lines. It, it brought me back to a lot of what we saw from like Twilight of the Apprentice, um, which I, I think is really cool. Yeah, the, the glowing red lines in the wall is just such a really arresting visual. Yeah, and I love the idea that you know Jedi temples are built over uh, Sith temples. Like, that's a cool idea to me. Yeah, Mika says you know, it's a purification of suppression. It's just an interesting concept. And, and you mentioned in the, in the previous recording how you liked how Cass like, Jedi, the Force? Yeah, I never really believed in any of that. And then just the kind of the skepticism um of you know various people throughout the galaxy were for but for him at you know for, for his, his entire life there's only been a couple jedi and it's a big galaxy so you know at, for most of these people unless they're actively involved you know you you know with these people every day it's just a vague rumor and the further you get from it there's the for the more fantastical and crazy the stories sound I, I i like just that idea you know, that half the galaxy still doesn't doesn't even believe in it yeah, I, and it's this is something I think the show does really well, which is just fully function in the Star Wars universe without having to draw attention to like ooh lightsabers and the Force and all all of this. And I remember like the moment that made me realize that they were doing this well is, you know, when the the kids show up and they see that, and I think one of them's like, oh, that's like that's the sign of the Jedi. Just the word Jedi kind of, started. I was like, wait, Jedi? Oh, that's right, like Jedi exist. I completely like we've just 
we've existed for so long in the show without even a mention of them that I kind of forgot that that's that we're sharing a universe in a cool way where I was really able to like empathize with Kaz when he's like that's ridiculous I've never heard of you know I've never really believed in any of this so it, it is cool that they were cr- able to create a story that functioned completely outside of you know m- the larger lore of Star Wars and I, li- I like Mika Gray as a character when we, when we first met her I got really excited for like a minute or two like wait is this is this uh Dr. Afra? Uh, which she's a comics character, you know, been that's been was created in the new canon, and she's essentially like a completely amoral Lara Croft like uh, archaeologist who's basically running you know, running in between the rebels and the empire, just kind of bouncing off both sides during the the the, the Galactic Civil War uh, original trilogy original trilogy era. Um, and just kind of getting up to all manner of shenanigans. Uh, it would have been real. It would have been really awesome if they could have brought her back as an old character in this. Um, you know, still out there, still getting into trouble and tracking you know, and uh, raiding tombs and stealing things. Um, but no, it's not. She's just some some person. Uh, but either way, it's fun. Uh, but what, what one thing I don't like is this: the uh, clumsy Kaz returns mm-hmm. with a vengeance in this episode. <laughs> Golly, I I wish that they were that Mika was in the show more after this. I think she only has like one real moment of of being involved in any way in the show for the rest of the in season. the worst episode. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> and so or maybe second worst. There's also the Vox Vortex. One of them. I dislike Kaz's curse even more. But I I w- the reason I wish we could get to like know her and spend more time with her is because i feel like she's a character i could learn to like like this person who doesn't put up with this kind of nonsense and you know she she can endear herself to the kids you know she she's agreeable it's just she like me just really gets put off by kaz's <laughs> ridiculousness and he like he i know your like, type you're the kind who talks too much and knows too little which is so true and he triggers like eight different uh, it's it's a constant and each every single time is like don't move okay not moving and he's like it's like a toddler <laughs> like reaching out and touching the thing again i didn't mean to it gets so awful and so like but she's also like because of how much he grates on her she's i feel like most of her dialogue in this is just shouted like there's no <laughs> real conversation it's just you fool you just blah 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 and it'll do something else it's like kaz you just did this and it's like the whole, so much of the episode is him. She does like, have a nice moment with uh, Ayla at the end. Yeah, so that and that's why I think like I would like her. It's just you. This episode, the episode that features her prominently, is like pairing her with the kind of person she just cannot, you know, really exist with. And so, so much of the dialogue of the episode is just Kaz annoyingly being like, "I didn't mean to. It was an accident," and her just like screaming at him. <laughs> Um, but speaking of that conversation, uh, this is where uh, Ayla goes up to her and kind of asks her, like, because Ayla has been established in the in the first season that Ayla is force sensitive, um, or at least to a degree. Um, so, you, know, you seem to know a lot about the force. She says, "I know a bit, but if you're wondering if I'm a Jedi or a Sith, I'm neither of those things. The force doesn't belong to any one person. It is something that is inside all of us. We just find we just find it in different ways." And there reminded me a lot of uh, Luke's line from the Last Jedi, you know, t- to think that if the, the Jedi die, the light dies is vanity. Um, it's always been present in Star Wars. But I think you know, 
the uh, Disney era is really kind of hammering home this idea that was 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 that they played with a lot of the Clone Wars, but I think uh, Rebels in particular with the um, Bendu, and, yeah, and uh, and the Last Jedi are really pushing f- forward this notion that you know the the, the 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 Jedi and the Sith they're just two different cults or sects or whatever you want to call them, you know that that are that you know worship the Force. And then you know there are hundreds, maybe thousands of other different, you know, very various groups and religions and all of that. Just you know, that are surround, that are focused on the force. Um, you know, uh, Kelly and Ayla talked about when they first saw the um, the temple. Like, hey, that looks like the temple of the force. You know, that that we had back on our planet. Like, it's it's some of that's that's just the, the this thing is so much bigger than the Jedi. And you know, this episode really isn't about that. But I I, I did love that they got that line in there. I always love it when those ideas are brought up. I wish it was more present in the last episode, but but yeah, it's it's cool to have characters like this who recognize it and kind of see past this, you know, this kind of false dichotomy between the Jedi and the Sith. And I also think it's it's cool to have characters who who aren't really like force sensitive exactly, but are archaeologists of of force art like force related artifacts um and speaking of the artifacts the it turns out to just be like a really big grenade but i i could have <laughs> I, I really thought that that was going to be like a sith holocron and i i had no idea how that could have been involved in the show but <laughs> the moment where she's like she calls the, to the relic raiders like hey i'm just theo i've got a gyro dirt <laughs> yeah i've got a gyro dirt um and uh, the, the relic raider design you know design is really cool you know we've seen you know a hundred different stormtrooper designs but i still get a you know a little tingle of excitement every time we see a new a different design i'm just i'm, just, I'm, I'm the perfect target for the uh, the star wars merchandising group that's it. like i know people get so cynical and they're like oh we just want another like they're just trying to sell us another toy i'm like oh yeah so it's awesome like i you know whenever we first saw the trailers for solo and there were stormtroopers with those big magnetic boots on and fur collars i'm like this is super cool and so every, every time we get a new a new stormtrooper design i always get i always get excited so the next episode is episode eight rendezvous point this one was directed by bosco and g and written by jennifer corbett uh and as captain doza uses a signal beacon to contact his wife resistance pilot Venisa Doza for their annual reunion. However, this draws the attention of the First Order. Following a dogfight, the Colossus is forced to retreat into hyperspace. Venisa arrives and is captured by Agent Tyranny. While in captivity, she meets Tam and tries to convince her to leave the First Order. While Tam is still unwilling to leave due to her sibling, uh, due to her still being oblivious of the First Order's true nature, she comes to respect her adversary and question her commitment to the First Order. Venisa escapes her cell with the help of her astromech droid Torch and escapes the First Order Star Destroyer, but not before skirmishing with stormtroopers and destroying several ties to distract Tyranny, with Tam willingly allowing her to escape. While Tor is upset at not being able to rendezvous with her mother, she decides not to risk drawing First Order attention. To cheer Tora Do- uh, to cheer Tora up, Kaz and the Ace pilots make her a jelly cake. Tora and Captain Doza spend family time together and reflect on Venisa's contribution to the Resistance cause. Uh, I like this one a lot, uh, mainly because it's it, it's focused on the First Order, and I just any 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 episode with Tam features a lot is a favorite of mine. Yeah, so uh, this one op- opens with a you know, giant space battle, and I just. 
we 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 keep talking about the lighting and the shadows and just like every episode like they show us just a different angle of looking at looking at it and it's always just blows me away the, the way that the 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 way the ships look when they're flying through space the way you know, just the the perspective of just the billions of stars like this it's just so many tiny pinpricks of light and the way they that interacts with the ships it's just it's cool and i, I just i never get tired of looking at it yeah the the little dogfight going on, I think, is really cool, too. And it's a cool way to open the episode. The only weird issue I have with it is it it feels weird that everybody, like, we're having this big dogfight for essentially, like, a birthday reunion. I, I, I guess, like, they didn't know that the Empire had whatever beacon frequency, so they, you know, they... they put the beacon on and then and then all of a sudden the Empire showed up, you know, the, the First Order showed up unexpectedly and yeah. they're just reacting. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it's still, it's, I, I really like the, uh, the visual though of them jumping to, to light speed and then having Vanessa appear like right as they leave. And it's just, well, we missed him. Um, uh, and she's a fun, she's a fun character, like re- really likable, like really competent and confident like she doesn't even blink, you know, when she comes out of hyperspace in the middle of a of, of a first order fleet, um, and just like I love that her her ship is so you know scoured and worn, and her helmet is all scratched, the paint and the droid is all you know is all trash looking. Like it, it's just it just it tells a story about her and what you know what she's been through and where she's been. Yeah, if to me she feels very like Poe Dameron esque. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I freaking love Poe, so I'm not gonna complain about that. I like her kinds of characters. They're like, they're they're cocky, but they're they're also just they themselves are altruistic and they have like polite personalities. And so they're they're not just cocky and obnoxious, but they they really are out for like the good of people. And they they they, they unlike a, a hype phase on who is just in it for himself and just you know tries to tear everyone down. I feel like her and hype, they, they, they empower everyone around them. You know, they are the most confident cocky person there, but also they, they try to bring everyone else around them up to their level and, you know, help them believe themselves and help them to do the best they can as well. Yeah. I, her, her addition, I think is cool. Yeah. And then speaking of getting excited over tiny little design changes, uh, her draw, her astromech droid torches, uh, dome is translucent. And, I don't know why, but that just, I love it so much. Just to be able to see the inside of his head as he moves around. It's really neat. I love all the variations. Um, or like she recognizes Tam and Tam, Tam thinks she knows her. So they go and, uh, they go and talk and then, uh, Vanessa takes Tam hostage and they're kind of wandering around the ship for a long time talking and, uh, with Vanessa trying to convince, uh, Tam to go back home. But, uh, it ends with her not being ready. So she gets stunned and left behind. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny um and then uh of course uh rocklin who's the freaking worst do we do we mention that before uh has to, of course has to butt in and try to be the hero and <laughs> i love it up but he's close the or torch closed the door of them not the brightest star in the system is he <laughs> yeah he's it's weird like I feel like he's a character I dislike in the way I'm supposed to. Like, I'm not like, this show would be better off oh, if I like he weren't him. He's a good it. character. I love yeah. him. But I love hating him. Yeah. He's he's a weirdly good addition, I think, to the the series. There's, he's so much like a Draco Malfoy. Like, a, a less overtly evil Draco Malfoy. Yeah. Um, 
I, he tries to justifies or he tries to justify any anything ev- evil that he would advocate for with well but really this and and dr- they chose the wrong side something else that i like about this episode i think the actual escape sequence itself is really really cool like the way torch is able to get her out of the cell i think is a bit too easy just kind of like i like the idea of him dia- or you know looking like just a damaged someone droid. should stop putting tasers in droids it seems like a yeah. menaces uh but you know it, they have an easy time getting her out but I, I love the idea of her uh looking like she's headed out and then just ejecting torch and as he just blows up all of the other ties and so, she escapes so much pyrotechnics and it's amazing it's really and i love his like the way he kind of flies out and, and hits the button it's a cool visual but like he's, he's very chopper like in that regard yeah, he likes chop. chaos. Uh, yeah, like that. To me, the, whole, the way that whole thing plays out is cool. Using the explosions as, as a distraction, using the him flying the tie as a diversion. It's all. I, it's not one where I'm like, okay, it's they let them win because it's a show. But really, like it's just a cool sequence. I think. Mm-hmm. And just the visuals of being in the hangar as. <laughs> Everything just blows up, and the, the billowing smoke and the camera kind of going around the characters as they as they move through it all. Just really cool visuals and animation. Something that's cool to me, I I don't remember this ever standing out to me in the Force Awakens or the Last Jedi. It wasn't until the Rise of Skywalker that I noticed, but like all of the perfect, smooth, shiny like floors on a Star Destroyer, mm. like. The beautiful blues and reflect like everything like the reflection is so clear and, and nice they can't, how how evil can they be when they keep their stuff that clean exactly but i this i know this preceded uh the rise of skywalker so i i guess that was always just the design it's just it was never really highlighted until rise of skywalker because i never noticed it until then but this the the set design of the Star Destroyer shares that completely of just like really really smooth, nice clear reflections. Shiny, so pretty. Um, yeah, the final scene is just so sweet and adorable when um Doza's watching the uh the old tape of his him and his wife together, and we learned that you know, it was her trying to convince him to like a few probably a year or two earlier, or it was six I think six, six years earlier. Where she's trying to convince him to join the resistance, but he's not ready to, you know, to be in another war. And we learned that uh, she was the one that convinced him to defect uh, from the Empire back in the previous war. And then uh, Tora comes in, and they just have this really sweet, tender moment together as they sit, you know, sit together and watch the recording of you know, their wife and mother. Um, just a nice little moment. Yeah. I've always, I've really liked Tora as a character. I know we already talked about it, but like, she's she's always just seemed like a fun personality and like you look at her like that that's just a, a good friend that's a, a good person to be with and i also really like the just the way they present their relationship like they do have a really sweet father-daughter relationship going on and i think it's the the episode where they hunt the jacuzzi but i love that you know she doesn't just kind of fall in with everybody else and you know ragging on him She's like, no, this is this is my dad y'all are talking about. And, you know, she, she'll get upset whenever people badmouth him, you know, because there is that kind of familial bond. And I thought the same, like at this ending sequence, as they're just kind of sitting together looking at him like, oh, that just that just feels like a sweet family. Yep. 
Uh, now we have the Vox, Vox Vortex 5000, whatever. Um, <laughs> so the Vox Vortex 5000 is directed by Stuart Lee and written by Gavin Hignite. Um, so with the Colossus low on credits and the Aces getting restless, Hype Faison comes up with a plan to go to his old boss's uh, Vox Vortex Casino uh, and Raceway to try and win some money for his for the station. His old boss, Frankie the Blue, the hot owner of the casino, makes a bet that if Hype loses the race, uh, you know, if he wins the race, he'll get money. If he loses, he'll have to stay in race for Frankie. So Hype agrees, but then uh, Frankie's racing droids cheat to win, leaving Hype in his power. And because all the other racers are morons, one by one, they all take the same bet and try to win Hype back. And then one by one, they all lose to, uh, to Frankie's obvious cheating. Uh, finally, Kaz and Tora tag team with help from Niku, who hacked into the racing droids algorithm. They win, and for some reason, Frankie finally agrees to honor his deal and let them go with all their winnings. Um, yeah, I don't like this one. It's just everyone is stupid, and I hate it. <laughs> yeah, this one I I don't think is a good episode, but I don't hate it the way you do. And I, I think it's because a big re like whenever I like Resistance, a lot of the time it's from purely like aesthetic levels. And I think the casino itself is a really cool visual. Um, and I, I think it, it's very reminiscent of like kind of Japanese RPGs. Like there's a, a location in Final Fantasy VII that this really reminds me of, uh, as well as like different locations. And it's not a JRPG, but like Mass Effect, you go to places similar. So I, I like that kind of like the very darkly lit, hollowed out asteroid looking area with the all of the Vegas looking casino. Like it's, it's a cool visual to me. And, uh, and I really love racing. <laughs> it looks like casino. <laughs> I think it looks cool. Uh, and I like racing uh, a lot. I do like the racing. The, the racing through the asteroid field is pretty cool visual. And like the droid racers are really cool. Like, scary. I love that, you know, like the, the way their head picks up and looks around is very much like the vulture droids from the Clone Wars era. They look like a cross between the vulture droids and the motos from the 2014 Godzilla. Oh, yeah. Really scary looking things and the voice is, yeah. Uh, That part's cool. Um, But eh, it's just, I don't, I hate when, when characters who aren't established to be morons act like morons. And like the bet is bad. And then he obviously cheats and they just keep going along with it. He just keeps cheating. It's like, I don't, why is anyone doing anything? And why are they dumb? And why can't they be smart? <laughs> in, in terms of uh, conflict, this is the worst. Because, wh- man, this and Kaz's curse both really just, I really hate both of these episodes. Well, no, I don't hate this episode because there's fun visuals that I like. I hate Kaz's curse. But with this conflict, it is so stupid where like, they, it's not even that he's cheating, and it's obvious that he's cheating, but nobody calls him on it. They're, they're like, that was a good sort Like, you you are cheating. And he just kind of laughs it off, and he's like, yes, I know, blah, blah, blah. Did none of them pack blasters? That, and that's what I thought. You know, like, I, I'm not saying, you know, that our in, our in a kid's show, our heroes need to just, you know, be ruthless killers. But I was just thinking, like, this whole time, like, I would not be against them i would not judge them if they just pulled out a blaster to the back of his stupid head and ended it there and ran off with all his money he is an awful stupid little hut and we just yeah <laughs> it's ridiculous but the the 
it becomes comedic where they're like, okay, we'll one more time. And this time, if we win, you let them all go. Well, if this time, if we win this time, you let them all go. And it's just different variations of cheating. And it's, uh, it's really, really frustrating. And for some reason, the guy who has been like openly cheating the entire time just randomly agrees to do the honorable thing and let them go with that's, their money. That's what's crazy. When he's like, all right, a deal's a deal. Here's the money. And he's like trying to beg him not to go by saying like, oh, well, if, if you do this, I'll like, why aren't you just, you already weren't going, going to let them go. There's clearly nobody else there who's going to like call you out on anything illegal. You just, for some reason now rules of like uh, agreed upon rules are like now binding. Yeah, it's just so stupid yeah the quacky monkey lizards are funny though <laughs> with, their, with their little uh like porter caps and they're just kind of wandering around doing things in the background i love like um, the the joke where he talks about the overgrown like henchman once and the camera just quickly pans over <laughs> and you've got these massive hulking monkey lizards with their little bitty hats like <laughs> that that little pan really uh, that made me laugh anything else to say about this uh, not really. I, I the the idea that it's all based off of like the game is contrived and yeah. I don't know. Like maybe there's another universe where like a story like that could be fun. Where it's like, oh, it's they're they're using the game. I'm sure there's some sort of fun '80s movie that does something along those lines. But I think my my favorite part about this was the uh, Frankie's announcer droid. Um, she's a voice by Gray Griffin, who was the original voice of Asajj Ventress back in the 2D Clone Wars in 2003. Mm. Um, and she, I just love how unironically enthusiastic you know, Frankie wins. Like she's just like so excited to be here. And oh, we're racing. And who cares if it's all a cheat? I have no idea. What? I'm not even convinced she like knows. She's just super into it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that, that is all we're going to talk about today. Uh, ne- next episode, we're going to talk about the final nine episodes, and we've got one more really bad episode, <laughs> and then we get into like the really awesome um, final run of the show of, of the season. I thought you were exaggerating at first, but after I got past Kaz's curse, well, so I, I like the first episode. After that, went a good bit. You know, it's it's fun, but the the episode after really yeah, kicks station, it up station is next which which one are you talking about uh the next it's the one where they're on uh they're they're dressed up as like the technician he's uh, so that's the next one station to station yeah is the one after castle's curse yeah. that was great i like that one a lot but it's the one after where they answer the distress call that to me is oh. where it really picks up and just this the series i finds momentum. missing agent i have a lot to say about that one yeah it becomes, I don't. It, it becomes a different show. Yeah. So yeah. Next 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 week we will cover the final nine episodes. Um. So yeah, that was our review of the first half of this of season two of Resistance. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please uh, take a moment to give us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, where there is Franchise Fatigue Podcast, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at Franchise Pod, and you can find all our other episodes at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me over on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's JL H A M R I. Uh, and you can also find the both of us along with a bunch of our other friends over as uh, we we are moderators over at the Star Wars group, the Outer Rim, a Facebook or the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group uh, on Facebook. Sorry. Uh, we are a group that very much loves 
all aspects of Star Wars, all of the different eras, and and want to promote positivity, uh, you know, and, and fun discussion about the series to serve as like a, a, a nice refuge from some of the other areas of the internet, you know, and we've got uh, the Star Wars Gal like the the galleries going on for Mandalorian and season two coming out in just a few months. So there's still definitely a reason to be excited and want to talk about the universe. You can also find me on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green, which even though I don't post there at all, uh, and I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01 uh, where I put out these movie uh, movie based music videos. Before we close out the episode, uh, I do think we need to mention that we've been called out. Uh, a friend's podcast has declared war on this podcast. They're over at the uh, podcast nil, or you have to type in like never heard of it. Uh, uh, probably because you've got to type out like parentheses zero 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 parentheses. No, ridiculous name, absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> uh, they've declared war. Uh, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that well, means. In the words of Thanos. I don't even know who you are. So. Exactly. So, you know, he that, said the ball is in our court. Uh, I, well, you, gotta, you should probably mention who it is. Oh, oh, sorry. Yes, this is Quentin Irie over at Nil. He's been a guest on before. He's a terrible person. And there, we, we invited you on our show. I know. And then he declared. This is how you thank us. Uh, <sighs> so, we accept. And now the ball is back in your court. And I know that you don't have, like, they don't record... They're a monthly show, so that's a that's a month's time of us not having to worry about the war in any any way. So, yeah. so until next week, we will see you in the second half of the season. <laughs>